Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys. Good evening, Mr. and Ms. America, and welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. This is Joe Dickerson, your host. We're proud to have as our guest this evening, Christopher Rose Esquire. Uh, Chris is with the law firm of Jolly Erga Woodbury Holtus and Rose out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Chris's practice focuses on business and commercial litigation, and he handles all kinds of disputes in both uh, federal and state courts. Uh, Chris holds the highest ratings available to an attorney. He's AV preeminent with Martindale Hubble. Uh, he is respected and recognized by super lawyers, and he carries elite status uh, by Nevada Business. Uh, Chris will be joining us in just a few minutes uh, with our subject for the evening. But in the meantime, since he's an attorney, I have to give you this disclaimer. The information in this program is not intended to be legal advice and may not be used as legal advice. Legal advice must be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case. Every effort's been made to assure that the information is up-to-date and current. It is not intended to be full and exhaustive explanation of the law in any area, nor should it be used to replace the advice of your own legal counsel. Any opinions expressed are the opinions of the speakers. Chris, would you uh, be kind enough to go ahead and give us a little bit of your background and training and uh, whatever preamble you'd like to give us uh, for the show this evening based on uh, your practice, and then we'll get into discussing uh, how clients can help their attorneys in the recovery of their money. And we've got uh, several specific topics that we're going to be covering, uh, including uh, the necessity for the client being available for their entire judgment enforcement team and their need to be providing information on everything that they have relative to the case. Uh, we'll talk about identifying red flags, uh, asking questions, and handling the client's expectations, and then we'll wrap up with the end game. So, Chris, I'm going to turn it over to you for a few minutes. Go right ahead. Thank you, Joe. Great to be with you today. Uh, I've been practicing law for about 19 years uh, with the same law firm here in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, as you mentioned, my focus for that entire time has been litigation, uh, representing plaintiffs, also defendants in certain circumstances. Uh, we represent large companies, uh, small businesses, individuals. It really just depends on what the circumstances are. Uh, we handle really everything in the civil litigation area. Uh, our firm does a little bit broader practice, uh, including real estate, gaming, licensing, uh, trusts and estates, and things of that nature. Uh, graduated from uh, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and got my law degree, magna cum laude, from University of Idaho. And that's uh, what I love to do. I love working hard and getting great results for clients, whether that's 
going to trial, getting a judgment, or sometimes that involves just getting a case resolved. If you have a defendant or a party on the other side that's willing to settle uh, and get it resolved, even though I litigate, that's what I do. Uh, certainly resolving things is always the best option if that's possible. Joe, do you want me to go ahead and start in on some of the uh, items that uh, we're going to yes, talk about Yes, why don't we today. do that, Chris? We're going to have a lot, of, well, a lot of territory to cover tonight, so let's jump into it. We do. I, I thought the first thing that was important to talk about was for the client to be available and how that plays into helping their attorney to recover, to win, and to ultimately try to make the client whole. And I think there's a few points here that are important to point out. One is that when someone has been wronged or injured or you're owed money, whatever it is, trying to get a remedy sometimes can be a pretty lengthy and involved process. Uh, a lot of times you start out with the with a demand letter and you hope that that's going to get the other side's attention. Sometimes it does. There are many times where a letter from an attorney shows the other side that you're serious, that things are escalating to the next level, and that can lead to a resolution. Other times it doesn't, and so you have to proceed to formal proceedings and filing a lawsuit. When that happens, uh, and unfortunately, as those who've been through litigation know, the legal system is not fast. It's designed to uh, protect constitutional rights, which means that everyone gets a chance to have notice, to be heard, more specifically, to go through the discovery process and get to trial, to have their day in court. And unfortunately, that process takes, best case, a uh, year, year and a half, and usually longer, two years or more, and that's if a case is not appealed. So for the client to be available to help their attorney is huge, and in reality, the client is the biggest asset to the case. Uh, they've lived what they, uh, they've lived the case, they know what it's about, they know what has happened, and so I think there's a few different stages where that comes in. One is at the beginning of the case, uh, meeting with the attorney, if you're out of state and meeting is not necessarily easy to do, then having phone calls and making sure that uh, the information given to the attorney is accurate, that it's complete. As far as what that involves, it's really going to depend on the complexity of the matter. If this is a simple loan and the client was not paid, that's probably going to be a little bit of a, a more simple um, set of facts and circumstances to, to discuss and to provide to the attorney. If it's a complicated investment in mortgages or in real estate, or maybe it's a partnership dispute uh, where money was invested in a limited liability company and uh, somehow the relationship went wrong or funds were misappropriated, whatever it is, that's going to require more time. And the more that the client is available, providing information, providing details, uh, that is really going to help the attorney get off on the right foot. So that's at the beginning of the case, making sure that uh, the client spends enough time to educate the attorney, to make sure he has all the information that's necessary. Being available changes as the case proceeds. Once a lawsuit is filed, uh, clients still need to be available for 
answering questions that the attorney might have, assisting in the discovery process, gathering documents, producing documents, and that can be a, a cumbersome and, and intensive process, but it's something that has to happen as part of the discovery process in a lawsuit. Uh, answering interrogatories, those are written questions that have to be answered under oath, uh, responding to document requests, and of course, appearing for a deposition. So being available for all of those stages is important. And then trial. At, at the end of the litigation process in the district court proceedings, you have the trial and being available to not only appear for trial, uh, but also to let your attorney adequately prepare you to review documents, to review questions, to help you understand how to be your best self, how to be your best, um, to be the best witness for your case is important. Again, that can be hard when witnesses and clients are out of town but you have to adjust and make accommodations for it. Uh, if you prevail at trial and get a judgment, the time commitment is less. Most of the client uh, commitment as far as time and energy and in investing into the litigation is going to happen at the beginning of the case, throughout the case, through the discovery process, and then when you are preparing to go to trial and when you uh, are at trial. And, you know, there's a lot there. And what each stage, the availability, the time that a client has to invest in meeting and talking to the attorney and providing, an, uh, providing information, it's really going to depend on the case. If you're going to have a one- or two-day trial, obviously the time commitment and availability requirements are going to be much less, much more simple. Uh, I have a trial coming up next month that's going to be at least two to three weeks. That's a much more involved time commitment. That's a complicated uh, lease option matter. So it really depends. But I think sometimes uh, even sophisticated people, business owners, uh, might not fully appreciate the time commitment that's involved in uh, proceeding and pursuing the amounts that are owed, pursuing the damages that have been suffered, uh, and what it will require for them to be available for their attorney to present the best case. Well, Chris, one of the good news in the majority of the cases that we handle and all of the cases that we bring to your firm and our other attorneys, the good news there is that the judgments are already in place. So what we're concentrating on is enforcing those judgments. And as I uh, tell all of our clients, they're two halves, just like there is to everything else. The first half is getting the judgment, but the second half is enforcing the judgment. And unfortunately, a lot of times the attorneys that take the case, take it to trial, fail to explain to their clients that when they win, they've just done a half a job and perhaps the easy half, and that's getting the piece of paper that says, client, the victim, you are now entitled to go find your money and get it back if you can. And that's what I do for a living, and that's what I bring you on board to help us with. So let's give the the uh, listeners a little idea. They still have a time commitment, and they still need to do good communication, but they need to know what to expect in this second half and what 
you and I in their entire judgment enforcement team is bringing to the table. And when I say team, you know, we have a staff of uh, forensic accountants. We have digital forensic experts and others that we can make as a part of the team. And oftentimes we try to get as much of that work done before we bring a package to you so you don't have to piecemeal it. But uh, please speak to that portion now, if you would, Chris. Sure, absolutely. And what you touched on, Joe, is really goes to part of an attorney's ethical obligations to inform their client about what they're getting into and what to expect and what the process uh, will entail. And boiling it down to what you just did, which is, one, is establishing liability, getting a judgment, but two, is the question of, can we satisfy that judgment? Can we execute and uh, enforce it? And those are questions, uh, in my practice, uh, one of the things that I love the most are just getting great results for clients. And a great result is created by a client being fully informed and advised at the beginning of the case and along the way. I think all too often there are attorneys who, for the sake of litigating or because they find that there's an interesting legal issue or maybe they just need to work, whatever it is, they skip that second aspect of what it requires, what's required to, to make a client whole, which is can you collect on a judgment if you get it? And so... At the beginning of the case, uh, what the attorney hopefully is going to do is have some detailed meetings and discussions with the client, not only about what happened and the circumstances leading up to uh, the liability and the claims for relief that have to be alleged, but also about the nature of the uh, defendant and the defendants. Are they individuals? Are they corporations? Are they limited liability companies? Are there multiple defendants? What's the relationship between the defendants? And what do they do? What do they have? And if you prevail and recover a judgment, then how are you going to collect it? Those are really discussions that have to happen right up front. And if the attorney isn't asking, uh, having those discussions with the client, isn't asking questions about those, I would hope that anyone listening to this show would feel uh, that they can ask those questions of the attorney. They are pointed, they're direct, but those are questions that need to be addressed and hopefully sooner rather than later. After all, when a client retains an attorney, they're the client. They're either paying that attorney on an hourly basis or if the attorney has accepted it on a contingent fee, either way, the attorney owes obligations to that client, and part of it is to be open and honest and forthright about the good, about the strengths, and about even the challenges of proceeding and pursuing a defendant, and that includes the likelihood of collecting. One of the things that I think is helpful is to evaluate, and this is where you come in, Joe, and what your company does so well, is to evaluate the need and the timing to have a litigation asset search to determine what assets the defendant or the defendants have 
uh, if possible, the extent of the assets, where they're located, so that you have an idea of, all right, if I'm going to invest all my time, my energy, uh, and money to pay attorney's fees, to pay costs, to get this judgment, that piece of paper that says John Doe owes me X amount of dollars, is it going to be worth it? Can Absolutely, I, Chris. That's yeah, exactly right. That? We've got, yeah, we've got about a minute uh, here before we have to go to our first break. So, you know, I would like to say that in the that's where we get our cases, and that's where people come to us saying, you know, we've had this judgment. Uh, we haven't got paid. We call the attorney. He told us that's a different process. Uh, they can't help us with that. What in the world are we supposed to do with this piece of paper we have? And you know, we do the forensic research to find the hidden and diverted assets, the offshore bank accounts, the airplanes and boats and other assets, and try to get that as documented as we can before we bring in an expert like yourself to help with the um, recovery process. But at that point, uh, if we've identified the banks, we can't get activity out of those banks of where the money's coming from that goes into the accounts, where they're spending it, whether they're they're transferring it to offshore accounts and so forth. So we have to depend on you taking the ball there, issuing the subpoenas to the courts to get all that documentation, and then together we can come up with a pretty good game plan. So it's time now for us to go to our first break. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes and proceed with the next phases. Thank you, Chris, and we'll be back momentarily. <laughs> Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from joe at financialforensicservices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. 
All right, we're back to our second segment now, and we're going to move right along, get into some of the uh, systems and processes that have to be used to now document assets, uh, get additional discovery, and some of the processes that are initiated in this phase to start the recovery process. Chris, I'll let you take it. Sure. Well, just as you can do before you get a judgment, after getting a judgment, you can engage in discovery against the defendant, now judgment debtor. Uh, But the scope of discovery has changed. Now you can get discovery about their assets. You really can't get that except in limited circumstances prior to the entry of judgment. But now you can get discovery about assets, the extent of the assets, bank accounts, companies, stocks, uh, even personal possessions, um, any kind of property uh, or assets that a judgment debtor has, you can get discovery and information upon. That doesn't mean everything is executable, subject to execution. There are certain exemptions under state law, and your attorney can advise you about those. But the key is, now is time to discover what they have, how you can satisfy your judgment. Some of the traditional discovery tools, to me, are not really worth engaging uh, in at the beginning of the case. For example, just as a defendant can be subject to a deposition, sitting down and having to answer questions under oath before a court reporter, just as they have to give a deposition during the litigation process, they can also be required after judgment to sit down and Uh, answer questions. I think that's good in certain circumstances. Uh, On the other hand, when they are there and you're asking questions, they're really getting an idea uh, and uh, getting information about what you're asking about and where you want to go. And I don't know too many people who owe a judgment who say, all right, you got me. Here's the money. Here's the assets. Uh, there's a lot of evasiveness, ducking and dodging. Same thing with sending interrogatories or requests for documents. I think they can be good, uh, but they just have a limited purpose. I think one of the most important things to do is getting an effective judgment um, asset investigation report from someone like your company, Joe, someone who, without necessarily even the judgment debtor being aware, Uh, is going to perform uh, an investigative uh, forensic search for assets. And what that does is gives us information that we can then use to try to uncover additional information. You mentioned, Joe, about maybe knowing where a bank account uh, is maintained, but you don't know any of the transactions that happen in that account. And that's That's where we come in and we issue subpoenas to banks, Uh, or subpoenas to other third parties. Uh, It can be brokerage houses uh, that we think have information or where the judgment debtors have maintained accounts. And at least in one case, uh, and Joe, you know what I'm talking about, a check that I believe your firm uncovered uh, that just was suspicious and a subpoena of the bank account for that company that maintained that account really blew open Uh, the judgment debtors' operations and revealed what they had been doing and where they had shifted their entire operations and assets to. So, uh, again, that forensic research and investigation can be invaluable, and then subpoenaing additional documents 
uh, is just crucial. It's a necessary part. Joe, I don't know if you have anything to add here uh, before well, I, I just talk about to, yeah, what the yeah, scope of wanted, that is. Wanted to is point out in the case you're talking about uh, talking about subpoenaing documents we had uh, been fortunate that we found out who the debtor CPA was and we had uh, a subpoena ready to be served uh, the following morning uh, for the CPA's uh, records and work papers so we could get some more details and strangely enough during the evening before the subpoena was to be served the next morning uh, the front glass uh, out of the business where the CPA's office was, was broken out uh, and uh, burglarized, and only one item was stolen, and that happened to be uh, the computer that had been dedicated to this client's business and his problems and consisted of all of his financial records and documentation and so forth. So the uh, debtor was very sad to have his representatives appear in court the next day and tell us they would be unable to supply any of the subpoenaed uh, data that morning. Of course, we had two or three backup plans. And like you said, you've got to have more than one way to get that information. So we had other sources available, like going to the banks that we knew about, uh, getting the check, seeing what uh, had been supplied to the CPA, and uh, getting some uh, tax returns and financial statements that had been supplied uh, to other banks where the debtor had a uh, lending relationship or a borrowing relationship because when you borrow from a financial institution, they always want at least two or three years of tax returns and financial statements. And with your help, we were able to subpoena those and get them, not necessarily the most current ones, but within a few months. And so all was not lost. Right. Well, the, the interesting thing that comes up in that scenario, Joe, where you're trying to do discovery about a judgment debtor's assets is by rule in Nevada, and I believe the federal rule is the same, you're allowed to obtain discovery from any person, not just the judgment debtor, but from any third party about the judgment debtor's assets, anything that is going to help you find assets uh, from the defendant who owes you money, you are allowed to get discovery. So if John Smith owes $100,000 under the judgment, but Mary Johnson has documents and information about Mr. Smith's assets, we can subpoena uh, Mary Johnson and get documents and information from her about the judgment debtor's assets, accounts, information. The trickier issue is can you subpoena and get access to a third party's assets and financial information if they are not a judgment debtor? The rules don't address that, but there is case law that gives guidance on this issue. The law in general tends to protect third parties who are not parties to a litigation and who are not subject to a judgment, it tends to protect their financial information from discovery. But there are some circumstances and exceptions to that where uh, a court will order discovery of that third party's assets to be produced. One of them is where the uh, relationship between the judgment debtor 
and that third party is sufficient to raise a reasonable doubt about the good faith nature of any transfers between them, the transfer of assets, the transfer of money, the transfer of funds. It could be a check that was written. It could be a wire that was sent. Uh, if there is circumstances based on the facts of the case that just raise doubts about why those transfers were done, why those payments were made, uh, and that poke holes, that raise questions as to the good faith of those, of those transfers, then you could be entitled to get discovery and documents about the financial information, the bank accounts of a third party who is not even a judgment debtor. And that can be very valuable. Uh, the other circumstance where you can get that discovery is when that non-party, that third party, is an alter ego of the judgment debtor. In other words, even though it's a separate person or a separate entity, the relationship between them is such that there's no reasonable or rational, uh, rational reason to treat them as separate and distinct. Uh, an, uh, an example would be if there's a corporation... Uh, that uh, owes a judgment and John Smith is the owner of that corporation, John Smith personally isn't going to be liable for the judgment that the corporation owes. But if John Smith uses company funds to take his wife to dinner, to take personal vacations, uh, to make his house payment, uh, in other words, if he uses company assets and company bank accounts and funds as his own personal bank account, really blurring the distinction between his personal finances and the company finances, there are situations then when you can get discovery about the individual, about John's personal assets, if that makes sense. Yeah, and another way that you can go after a, a, a person that's not the named debtor uh, is when they have been the recipient of a fraudulent transfer or fraudulent conveyance, where, uh, and this goes into the civil fraud, not the criminal fraud. And, of course, when those have occurred, I always tell my clients that uh, those conveyances are the good news. In fact, I wrote a white paper about the good news about fraudulent transfers because when you transfer those assets to a third party, the very act of transferring them leaves a paper trail that's irrefutable. And uh, you may want to go ahead and talk about the badges of fraud. There are about eight or nine of them, I think, nine under the Uniform Act. And you don't have to have all nine of them. It's enough to convince the judge that it was done with the, uh, quote, intent to hinder, delay, and defraud the creditor. So, Chris, you want to speak on that a little bit? I think that's the other way we get to these third parties. Absolutely. So in Nevada we have something called the Uniform Fraudulent Transfer Act. That's under uh, Nevada Revised Statute, Chapter 112. I believe that most states have a version of that Fraudulent Transfer Act, but yes. fraudulent transfer claims are generally recognized uh, throughout the country. And there's several different varieties. You mentioned the first one, Joe, which is when a defendant or a judgment debtor transfers assets. Just think of it as dumping assets to avoid a creditor. Anytime a person dumps things because they want to avoid collection or losing those assets to a creditor, that is one of the prime examples of a fraudulent transfer. And it's the first example covered by statute, which is 
when there is an actual intent to hinder, delay, or defraud a creditor, that by itself uh, constitutes a fraudulent transfer. Second type of fraudulent transfer is when a judgment debtor transfers an asset without receiving a reasonably equivalent value in exchange for the asset. And in addition, when, as a result, the remaining assets are unreasonably small in relation to the business, uh, or they uh, incurred debts that were going to be beyond their ability to pay. So second type of fraudulent transfer is transferring an asset for something far less than what it really is worth. And that uh, may well be covered up by the deed that says uh, for consideration of $10 and other good and valuable consideration, that's not always a red flag, but basically what they're saying with putting that $10 in, they're complying with the law that says there must be consideration, but uh, $10 is not a good consideration for transferring a million-dollar estate. Uh, there are ways of finding out what that consideration was, and that's beyond the scope of this program at this time, but uh, that's something that uh, we see oftentimes, and it may be an indication you need to look a little further, although it's pretty common. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. That, that's a common entry for a real estate transaction, but certainly for someone who wants to commit fraud or engage in a fraudulent transfer, it's something that they would try to hide behind. Right. Uh, other kind of fraudulent transfer is if they transfer assets to an insider for an antecedent debt. In other words, for a debt that's old and that arose before your debt did. So uh, as you just mentioned, Joe, there are certain badges of fraud. No one is ever going to admit, all right, you caught me. I committed fraud. That really just doesn't happen. What happens is you prove certain other things and events and facts and those taken together are badges of fraud, meaning that they, by inference, establish the fraud. Some of those badges of fraud are that the transfer was to an insider, could be a close family friend, a close relative, uh, something of that nature. Subsidiary uh, corporation? Exactly. Uh, wholly, uh, a related company or entity, or one that's controlled, even if it's not owned by the judgment debtor. We've seen companies that are, in effect, the judgment debtor's company. Even though they don't own it, they control it, and they use it for their own purposes. So a transfer to any type of person or entity like that, that can be uh, called an insider. Or to a trust uh, that they created. Absolutely, yes. And we've seen that as well. I don't own this. It's owned by a trust, and we've been able to defeat those arguments as well. Uh, another badge of fraud is if the ownership uh, of the property is transferred, but the debtor retains possession or control of it. So they move title. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's real property. Whatever it is, it could be ownership stock in a company. Again, if they transfer title, but the debtor continues to uh, use it, to possess it, it's another badge of fraud. Uh, the transfer was concealed. That, that one makes sense. Transfer was substantially all of the debtor's assets. Uh, the debtor absconded. They just disappeared. Uh, if a lawsuit, if, if right before the transfer, a lawsuit had been threatened, uh, 
or the debtor became aware that they were about to be sued, that's a badge of fraud. Uh, or if again, it made them insolvent. Yeah, if it made them exactly. insolvent, that's another badge of fraud, meaning they can't the pay their obligations. Absolutely. They, they were insolvent or they became insolvent shortly after the transfer was made. Another badge of fraud uh, that can be used to establish a f- uh, fraudulent transfer. Uh, here's another one. You see this all the time with credit cards. Uh, a transfer occurred shortly before or shortly after a substantial debt was incurred. So someone goes and runs up a debt, but either before or right after that, they dispose of XYZ assets. Uh, this list is not exhaustive. There are other circumstances, and, and I've seen them and I've used them in court, uh, that can show a judge that, you know, this is just not right. Something's wrong, something's fishy, and this asset needs to come back. It needs to be tied up so that it can be used to satisfy a judgment. Absolutely. Um, we're going to be going to a break here in just a few minutes, but let's uh, go ahead. And do you want to uh, move now into uh, talking about some of the red flags we need to keep an eye on? Sure. And, and we've, and we've only got about a minute before we break, Chris. Right. Before we break, I'll just mention this about fraudulent transfer. If a client has a judgment and discovers after the fact of, about fraudulent transfers to other third parties or other third entities, to hold that third party liable for a fraudulent transfer, uh, they can't add that third party to the judgment. They have to file a new action against that party who received the asset. Now, they can tie that asset up. The Fraudulent Transfer Act allows that to protect the asset from being transferred any further, but there are some additional proceedings that have to happen to make sure the third party who received that transfer is uh, not allowed to dispose of the asset. They tell me it's time to break, so we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from joe at financialforensicservices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. All right. Welcome back from the break. Uh, Chris, is there anything else that we need to uh, finish up on the uh, red flags before we go into questions and expectations? Well, I think just a couple of points. One is, if we believe there have been some fraudulent or improper transfers of assets, then it's wise to take action as soon as you can. If an asset is transferred to either later or at that time, if it ends up in the hands of a good-faith purchaser, which means someone who didn't know that the judgment debtor is trying to avoid a debt, and someone who paid a reasonable value for the asset then the uh, ability to get that asset back uh, becomes much, much harder. In fact, a good-faith purchaser for value, it's going to be hard to get any relief against them. So if you become aware, your attorney becomes aware, or maybe the uh, forensic uh, uh, asset investigator becomes aware uh, of improper transfers, it's important to act as soon as possible to prevent someone down the road from becoming a good faith purchaser of that asset. Okay. I think that pretty well covers that. So uh, we want to talk about questions and expectations now. Yeah, let's just talk a little bit about the flow of information, how that uh, affects the, a client's expectations, the questions that they should be able to ask. When you're beginning a case, when you're in the middle of the case, and even after trial when a judgment has been obtained, it's important for the attorney to really have a grasp. And by that time, uh, at trial and post-judgment, the attorney should understand what, what has happened and what led to the relationship between the parties. But that's going to come from the client, hopefully early on. One of the things that's always helped me uh, in understanding the relationship and how my client got to a certain situation is by getting a chronology of events from them of what happened when. And, of course, any of the agreements and documents, communications. Nowadays, even social media posts can be valuable. Um, and all of this is important not only for the trial and to get a judgment, but it can also help uh, provide information about what a defendant, what a judgment debtor is doing um, currently after, after a judgment's been entered against them. So the more information that can be given, the better. Again, initially, that information is going to come from the client. It's going to take some legwork and rolling up your sleeves to go through records and emails. Uh, later on, your attorney is going to be able to do some investigation and, uh, of course, discovery. And then uh, if you get an asset investigation search or report, that will reveal information as well. But I think that's important to have that so that when you're trying to execute on the judgment later on, you understand really who you're dealing with, where they were, where they're at now, and then hopefully that's going to reveal some assets. Uh, 
What, you know, along those lines, Chris, before you move on, uh, along sure. those lines with with questions, I also like to encourage the clients to not only ask all of their questions, but also discuss with us their hunches and their gut feel, because oftentimes that's more important than the facts. Uh a business person that's been around for years and years and knows their business, knows their operation, and they start feeling a little uneasy about a particular employee in a certain position, uh, they should uh, take the necessary steps to follow up either with their auditors or in particular if the matter is is uh, going to be a part of the litigation. Uh, I'd like to know their feelings and what they're based on because more times than not, they're right. Joe, that's a great point uh, for a few reasons. One, not only does the client know their business and the facts, but they also know the judgment debtor. They know the defendant better than anyone, better than the attorney, better than the asset investigator because they're the ones who dealt with him, uh, him or her. And that uh, was involved in the circumstances giving rise to the liability and the judgment. Sometimes those relationships are maybe a few months. Sometimes they're a few years. I've had situations where the relationship between my client and the judgment debtor has gone on decades, and it's been a very long process. Uh, Sometimes it's family members, unfortunately. Other times they're longtime friends or associates. And so, Joe, I think there's really a lot to be said about what you mentioned. Tell me what you think. What's your gut feeling? What's your hunch? Uh, what are their tendencies? You know, what kind of person are they and what would they do in this situation? I think there's a lot that can be uh, learned from going by what someone feels and what they believe based on their knowledge of that defendant and the situation. Yeah, and they- they, they may not know the answer, but they may know that something's just not right. I'm uh, working with a matter right now where uh, the husband and wife are in business together, and the husband has opened up some uh, business accounts, and uh, he and the wife are both the signatories on the account. Uh, he has put a substantial amount of cash into several of those accounts that uh, may not uh, be uh, properly accounted for funds. And uh, the wife is now, uh, without her knowing it, she is now the owner of those accounts. He is no longer the owner, but he is the signator on the accounts. And... uh, when we discovered that, and uh, it was from a hunch that something wasn't right uh, that the wife said, and we started looking and found that he was doing this, and uh, we believe that he's using those accounts that she owns to place the ill-gotten gains into for which she may well become liable, and we're in the process of trying to take corrective actions, but this has just come to our attention, but the fact that she got uncomfortable is what brought us to looking at this when she didn't know where to look or what might be the consequences. Right. Yeah, someone who's lived it and breathed it, and uh, for better or for worse, they they know it in and out, uh, really can be an important source of information. And what I've noticed as well is that sometimes events or dates 
or facts or things that have happened or even documents that my client doesn't think are significant or that they don't think really matter that much can turn out to be really important. And an attorney can use them either to prevail in the case or to make certain arguments prior to judgment or after judgment to uh, reveal information that's going to help set a path as to how to collect. Absolutely. Those are are very, very good points. Uh, You want to speak as to expectations now? Sure. I I think, again, this goes back to what kind of attorney you have uh, or that you've retained, whether you're a corporation, a business, or an individual, and how they explain things to you at the beginning of the case. Uh, what you're asking them to do and what they tell you they can do. And then it also goes to how the attorney is communicating with you throughout the case, uh, updating you, providing you with information and documents. And this applies not only to the first retention of the attorney throughout the case, through the trial, but of course, again, as to collection of the judgment. Any good attorney is going to tell you that uh, you know there's no 100% uh, chance of winning. I've had some cases where I have felt very strongly about it, but I always let clients know, look, that's me. That's my position, and a judge or a jury could see it differently. Uh, I think I can give a client a pretty good idea of where they will end up as far as their claims, uh, it gets a little bit more difficult to let them know where they will end up as far as collecting on a judgment, unless you have some good, valuable intel uh, that's reliable and that's current. But in any event, these are all things that the attorney should be discussing with you about uh, strengths, about challenges. Uh, both of proceeding with the case and proceeding to trial and obtaining a judgment, as well as locating assets and being able to collect and satisfy on a judgment. Uh, if your attorney's not having those discussions about the benefits, maybe the uh, the challenges or the uh, disadvantages of going forward or the strengths of trying to collect and some of the challenges of trying to collect, then I would invite uh, any client to really ask their attorney those pointed questions. I don't think any client should feel like there's a question that they cannot ask, that there's a question that's going to sound stupid or that they shouldn't uh, take the time of their attorney to ask the question again. The attorney works for the client, and they're there not only to do their best job of presenting a case, obtaining a judgment, and collecting, but they really have to keep the client informed uh, along the way. And uh, hopefully that happens. If it doesn't, then you should be on the phone or in the attorney's office saying, you know what, what are my chances of, I I know you've told me I'm going to win the case, what are my chances of collecting on this? Uh, How are we going to do that? Ask those difficult pointed questions because any good attorney is going to consider them and think about them uh, and a better attorney is going to have those discussions with his client up front throughout the case and 
certainly after they've obtained a judgment. And you know and the client having, should be the the client should be prepared for for getting an answer they may not be anticipating or may not be wanting to hear too. Uh, Chris, I know I've had these situations, and I'm sure you have too, where I have told my client, do not move forward with this case. It's going to cost you way more than it's worth, and I believe your chances of uh, coming out on top are very, very slim. And sometimes the client, I just know in my heart, you know, I've whatever, I've talked to my uh, sister-in-law about this, and we think that we need to keep going. And there have been occasions where I've asked them to to sign off on a piece of paper saying that in, we have advised them against it, but they uh, want us to continue. And we've gone a little further with it, and I've gone back to them with the same thing and uh, finally just had to withdraw from the case because in my heart I couldn't continue to represent them uh, the way they wanted to be represented because what they wanted wasn't there in my opinion and it just couldn't be a a party of continuing on with that against their their wishes and uh unfortunately they didn't want to hear that uh chris we've got about uh two minutes here before we have to wrap up so if you have any closing comments now would be a great time to uh, get those out for our uh, listeners sure yeah and before that closing comment just to add to your last point joe uh, sometimes attorneys don't tell clients that they might be liable for the attorney's fees and costs of the other side if they don't prevail. That can happen. Yes. Or that if they, or if they do prevail, they could spend as much money as they're owed trying to get the judgment and not, then not collect it. Uh, but look, at the end of the day, what I do is about the client. I take my marching orders from them. I will always be honest and up front with them about the risks, the benefits, the strengths, the weaknesses, the economics. I think that's one thing that attorneys always have to be aware of. What are the economics of the case and what makes most sense from a business or from an economic standpoint for the client? And so uh, whether it's going to litigation, whether it's executing on the judgment, keeping those uh, in balance uh, what the client wants, what the economics are, and what it's going to take to to get to where the client wants to go uh, are things that the attorney should be keeping in mind and at the forefront of their list of priorities. And hopefully uh, a client, when they have an attorney, feels like the attorney has their best interest in mind. And that doesn't Absolutely. always end up in a judgment being obtained or a judgment being collected but it can end up with a client being informed and making an informed decision that is in their best interest. Absolutely. Chris, thank you so very much for being with us this evening. Uh, your information has been not only interesting, but very informative and I'm sure helpful to our listeners out there in radio land. Uh, Best of luck to you. Let's stay in touch. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Uh, and Mr. Miss America, next week we're going to have Andy Kendrick as our special guest. Uh, Andy is an expert in all things digital, and you will be amazed and impressed with some of the information that he will bring to you that some of us have never even heard about and didn't even know existed. In the meantime, until next week, keep in mind, it's not what you win, it's what you recover that matters. Thank you and good evening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.